Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, is the much ballyhooed 2015 income tax rollback scheme unconstitutional? Steve Liedel of the Dykema Law Firm says it is, and the governor can declare it so. Former Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly, the CEO of the Small Business Association of Michigan, SBAM, disputes that claim. Hear why he's pushing for an income tax cut. And Senator Jeremy Moss tackles a potpourri of subjects on this week's edition, including the future of immediate effect in the Senate and the early presidential primary. Now, here's MERS News Editor Kyle Malin with publisher John Rurink and MERS Samantha Schreiber. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. We've got a packed edition of the podcast this week for you. We're going to start things off right off the bat here with Steve Liedel. Steve was the attorney for Governor Jennifer Granholm back in the day, and now he works for the Dykema Law Firm. In his spare time, he checks out the tax code. Is that a fair assessment, Steve? Sure. <laughs> so recently, you took a look at this 2015 tax bill that was designed to increase the gas tax but another portion of it the key portion of it was if there was an income tax rollback segment tell our listeners a little bit about that portion of it sure i mean i've certainly been involved in the past with changes to that same section you know relating to the income tax in different capacities wasn't involved in 2015 heard a lot of folks speculating about what it all means in the last few weeks here in lansing i thought well maybe i'll actually read it uh, and a couple of things uh, jumped out at me. One, uh, there are a lot of folks suggesting that this would lead to sort of a permanent reduction in the Income Tax Act. I don't read the text of it that way. Perhaps that was what was intended in 2015, but I don't believe it's a permanent reduction. I believe it's an annual reevaluation under the text as enacted. And then secondly, I believe the mechanism that was implemented uh, to make the decision and the determination about the what the rate should be likely violates Michigan's constitution. I remember covering this 2015 income tax rollback idea. Back at the time, the argument from at least the Senate Majority Leader Arlen Mikoff was that this was going to be permanent, that once the income tax was reduced, it could not go back up. It could only continue to go down. Yeah, I mean, I think first it's important to remember that uh, the courts regularly say the opinions of individual legislators or individuals in government involved in enacting a law are not relevant to their analysis when they interpret a law. They look to the text of the legislation as enacted by the entire legislature uh, for a statement of legislative intent. And only then, if it's ambiguous, might they then consider other material. So any sort of analysis uh, always begins uh, with the text of the statute as enacted. Uh, and as enacted, um, there's some specific words that were used that make it to me quite clear that it's not a permanent reduction or sort of a setting a reduction beginning in 2023 that then can only go down uh, in future years. First, you know, unlike other provisions, uh, even under uh, the same provision of the Income Tax Act, it doesn't just apply after a set date. It says for each tax year beginning on and after January 1, 2023. So that indicates a clear intent that the legislature intended there to be an annual reevaluation of the rate. Uh, secondly, the language uses the term, the current rate. That could mean 
potentially in the context three things. The current inflation rate, because the only other reference to a rate uh, in that provision is to an inflation rate. It's not that, uh, based on the broader text of the language. It seems to be referring to the rate of the tax. Well, is it the current rate when the law was enacted, which would have been 4.25%? That certainly is an argument. Uh, if the legislature had wanted uh, the individuals making the determination to use a different rate, they could have used other terminology, such as then current or the rate at the time the calculation is being made. Instead, it says the current rate. So then the question is, whenever you're doing this calculation, presuming the statute is constitutional, uh, what's the current rate mean? Well, um, the language in Section 511B is pretty clear. Except as otherwise provided, after October 1, 2012, it's always 4.25%. There has to be some specific exception that applies. Mm. And so if you're making this determination for each tax year, you know, for example, right now, uh, let's say you're attempting to do it now in February of 2023. Well, what's the current tax rate? Well, the current tax rate under the law is 4.25%. Uh, hmm. Okay. So then, then you're also talking about the constitutionality. Mm -hmm. and, and discuss that. Why could this not be constitutional? Well, unlike other provisions uh, of the tax rate, uh, tax act that um, actually you know, just sort of provide a formula, and, and you can see that again in other provisions of Section 51, where it's just simple math to determine what the tax rate is. Uh, and then the Department of Treasury is charged elsewhere in the income tax with implementing it. Here, uh, there is a specific determination required to be made by three public officials. Uh, and so what the legislature did in 2015 was create a new public body, uh, a public body composed of the state treasurer, uh, the head of the Senate Fiscal Agency and the director of the House Fiscal Agency. Uh, and two of those individuals are officers of the legislative branch. Uh, one of them is an executive branch officer, a constitutional officer. And our Constitution, without a constitutional exception, prohibits officers of one branch from performing the functions of the other. So it's either an executive function, in which case it violates the Constitution to vest those functions in a legislative office, or it's a legislative function. Uh, and it's improper to vest it in the executive, and the legislature has improperly delegated its legislative authority to its fiscal agency directors. Uh, the, the other reason that this, this likely violates the Constitution is that Michigan's Constitution requires when any sort of instrumentality is created by the legislature to perform any sort of administrative function, the legislature is obligated to house that in one of the not more than 20 principal state departments. They failed to do so. So it's not quite clear where this public body that they've created, which by the way would be required to comply with the Open Meetings Act as a public body, um, in which department it's located. Legislature failed its task there. So those are the, the constitutional issues that would likely be raised. But that uh, triumphant though of the Senate fiscal and the House fiscal and the Treasurer is already in state law with the Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference. Is, is that an unconstitutional then? I think that's quite different. Uh, here you have a body making a determination as to a tax rate which will be paid as a matter of law uh, by you know, every individual uh, conducting economic activity and receiving personal income in the state. Um, the, uh, and um, you know, that's a delegation of the legislature's function um, of the taxing power to someone other than the legislature, which is also specifically prohibited under Article 9, Section 2. 
The Consensus Revenue Conference is just that, a conference, not a board, not a commission, not a committee. It's a joint meeting of officials within the uh, executive and legislative branches who meet to discuss pursuant to the statute um, the uh, forecast that will be used for budgeting purposes, but it's not a mandatory forecast and it doesn't bind anyone outside of government. Well, on the constitutional question, I mean, I can see where you're going with it, but you have to have someone to bring a case, right? No. And there hasn't been a case brought, right? I mean, you're just saying this is vulnerable, right? I think it goes uh, further than that, John. Uh, remember, Michigan's courts have said that um, the governor has as solemn an obligation to consider the constitutionality of, at the time, his. Now we know that it can definitely be a her, uh, every act. Uh, and um, the, uh, the governor is responsible for the faithful execution of the law and for the direction and supervisions of constitutional officers and state departments. So if the governor, and this has occurred, uh, for example, with regard to uh, implementation of issues relating to the budget in the past, uh, and uh, with regard to issues relating most recently to uh, how the 1931 abortion law uh, would be treated, where the governor viewed that as unconstitutional. So uh, not necessarily. If the officials in charge with administering the statute determine that the statute is unconstitutional, they have a duty uh, under Michigan law not to comply with an unconstitutional provision. They could perhaps seek guidance from the attorney general. Uh, if there were questions, uh, we could potentially see an attorney general opinion on the question before you would get to any litigation. When you think about the rebate proposal, is this a very, is a rebate check a very simple thing to do to utilize the general fund to finance the rebate check? Um, or are there any type of legal language that could possibly make that a bit more of a challenge? You know, my recollection, having you know looked at these things in the past, is it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, based on what I heard uh, from the news conference today, and you know, let me be clear, I'm not representing any client um, here today. These are just my personal views based on my personal experience. Um, that uh, you, you, the news conference was very clear; it's going to be $180 per filer, right? And so, the Department of Treasury has records of tax filers. Uh, this is how federal uh, um, checks have been done in the past quite regularly. If you filed, for example, in 2022, uh, a tax return, then you would get a check. So having listened to the press conference today, what's your thoughts here on uh, this idea of, of taking money out of the general fund and then giving it back to taxpayers? Would that reduce the amount of the general fund to the point where it wouldn't activate this trigger if it were found constitutional? Or would it have to go into a separate fund? Yeah, I think potentially yes. Uh, if this is a, a refund based on your 2022 tax year status, for example, that could very well, uh, based on government accounting rules, not being an accountant, you know, not saying what the government accounting rules would actually provide under the Government Accounting Standards Board, but you could very well uh, have an expenditure that could be allocated to fiscal year 22 if it's related to 22 uh, tax revenue. Uh, and so it could potentially have an impact on this formula, as could a host of other things. You know, a lot of the speculation with regard to whether or not this tax uh, rate reduction might occur under the statute has been just that, speculation. Right? There are some folks sort of trying to indicate that it's a, it's a given that's not the case. The law is clear right now. The rate is 4.25%. Uh, 
folks that wanted to, you know, assure that uh, this law enacted in 2015 might be implemented in 2023 had an opportunity in 2022 to work with the administration, make sure the books were closed in 2022, uh, make sure that the deadline could have been met. You know, there is a deadline in the statute for this determination to have been made by the January consensus revenue estimating conference meeting, and, and that deadline's already been missed under the statute. Um, and so, um, sure, I think for a host of reasons, um, folks may find out that that formula that some folks were speculating might result in a reduction in the income tax rate won't actually result. But at the re consensus revenue estimating conference, both the House and the Senate Fiscal Agency and Treasury all said that based on what they're seeing, that trigger is going to be activated. But the books weren't closed yet, right? And the trigger isn't, you know, what folks thought or were estimating at the conference. It's based on the actual comprehensive annual financial report for the state. And to be clear, as you were looking at the tax code, uh, were you doing this because you were being paid by somebody to do this? Or are no. you just taking a look at it because you're a tax nerd? Yeah, I, mean, I, I had been spent some time in D.C. and Detroit doing some client work. I came back to Lansing, you know, uh, visited with a few folks, had coffee, and everyone was talking about, oh, this this tax increase reduction that everyone's talking about. You know, I live in Brighton. No one in Brighton was talking about this issue amongst my kids, friends, or, <laughs> or neighbors, right? It, it seemed <laughs> to be a discussion that. that was quite intense within about five blocks of the state capitol. And so I said, well, whenever <laughs> I have a situation like that, it's like, well, what's really going on? And I, as a lawyer uh, and someone who's worked in and around government, I tend to go back and read the statute. And I did, and I looked at it uh, one evening uh, and said, whoa. I don't quite agree that it's one permanent. And hey, I don't think I've seen that anyone has raised this constitutional issue. Uh, so based on what you're telling us here, Steve, the governor can just say, I don't think this is constitutional. The rollback doesn't happen. And if somebody wants to challenge her in court, they can. Um, but that's where the legal action would take place. Sure. I mean, if, if you consider who's responsible for this, these are folks that are the direct appointees of the governor under Michigan law. Right. That, that's also why it's problematic to vest a portion of the function in officials of the executive branch under the separation of powers clause. Uh, the state treasurer, for example, serves at the pleasure of the governor. The state treasurer is subject to uh, supervision and direction by the governor. But I do think more importantly from a public policy perspective is, you know, there's also the principle that past legislatures can't bind future legislatures. And so this notion that uh, the current legislature uh, which was just elected by voters, uh, you know, a couple months ago, effectively, um, should somehow be bound in how it makes how it makes policy determinations, you know, with regard to uh, any sort of uh, provision of excess tax revenue back to filers and taxpayers. Uh, they were elected to make these decisions, not just defer to something that uh, several legislators uh, elected in 2014 did. So from a policy perspective, you know, it's kind of up to the legislature to decide what to do. But in terms of the legality of this provision, it's awfully questionable, given my experience in and around state government. 
So I do have a question about the tax rate because with this rollback going to 4.25 to 4.05, I can't help but feel that something along the lines of 3.9, which has been pushed for, would be much more of a better deal for the Michigan resident. Yeah, uh, folks have talked about that uh, quite a bit, Samantha. Um, you know, my first experience on, as an outsider observing that was uh, in the Angler administration, you know, seeking to reduce uh, with the rollback provision. Uh, to 3.9%. There were triggers, though, that paused it, uh, given economic conditions. And so that was never sort of fully implemented. We couldn't quite get there as a state. And then I was in the room when Governor Granholm signed uh, changes to this the income tax rate. In this same section, Section 51, that involves this uh, potential trigger that's been the subject of discussion. Uh, and that law that she signed in uh, 2007 provided that the rate today would be 3.9%. That was changed, though, in 2011 uh, under Governor Snyder and the then legislature. Uh, they both uh, uh, delayed some re relief that was coming in 2011 that was on, on the books in the law. The legislature chose to delay it uh, while they were making other tax changes. Uh, and uh, they also uh, eliminated the rollback down to 3.9. I mean, structurally, you know, just my experience in and around state government, we may have a structural financial need for an income tax uh, rate around 4.2 to 4.4%. Without greater reform in taxes, uh, that seems to kind of be the basis to what's needed to sustainably support the functions of state government. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that automatic income tax rollback, but that was part of the deal when they raised taxes at that time to 4.35 during the Great Recession, that it was supposed to roll back, and Snyder put the brakes on that just to, as part of a, a budget balancing provision that also cut business taxes. Yeah, we have a lot of promises of a lower rate, uh, and often it seems to be around that magic 3.9% number because it's just under four. Uh, but in terms of uh, policymakers sticking with that commitment, it doesn't have seemed quite to have happened over the course of several decades. Federal money that we have received during the pandemic, I feel essentially serves as a safety bell as we explore these tax policy modifications. However, there are some members of the media speculating, could the federal government go and take back unspent COVID money? Is that something that is a legal possibility that can happen? Or is it, you know, once the money's been given to us, it's probably not going anywhere? I've looked at the issue, you know, from a state law perspective, you know, in different times uh, when um, the state uh, finds itself in financial trouble, it looks for unexpended funds and looks to pull those forward or you know, does what are termed as raids on specially dedicated funds. I would suspect, um, you know, given the case law I looked at the time, it might be difficult to sort of directly pull that money back. Um, but the federal government also might have the ability to impose penalties you know, for other activities if a, local, if a state government doesn't comply with the requirement to return expended funds. I suspect there are creative lawyers in Washington that could come up with a mechanism that you know might pass muster to pull back at least a portion of that money. Steve Lidl, he was Governor Granholm's legal advisor back in the day. He now is an attorney over at Dykema. Appreciate you being on this week's version of MERS Monday.
Join us now on the podcast is the president and CEO of the Small Business Association of Michigan, Brian Kelly. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this morning, Brian. Great to be with you, Kyle. John, go ahead and start things off. So what did you think of the governor's presentation this morning and the $180 check? Seems that will mitigate the need for a rollback of the income tax based on the trigger. Was that a hat trick? What I, it's really kind of hard to respond to because the structure of it, of, of how they're going to put all this together, there's a lot of unanswered questions that uh, probably won't be answered until they release actual uh, language for uh, of a bill. So uh, in, in that sense, it's, it's difficult. Uh, they did seem confident that they'd found a way to cancel the rollback, which is most unfortunate. The, um, the idea of uh, rebate checks is fine. Certainly wouldn't, um, certainly wouldn't have a reason to, uh, to oppose that. But the, I think one of the things that commonly gets missed in these discussions when they do like a, a flat amount Small business owners pay taxes on all their business income on their personal tax return, even if they don't take any distributions whatsoever personally. And 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 that's the case for a lot of small business owners. When they make a profit, they have to leave it in the business to accommodate growth of the business. And uh, but even in that case, the income flows through and is taxed on their personal tax return. So they get labeled rich all the time, even though they don't have that type of income coming into their household. So when you do a flat amount of tax uh, or you do a flat rebate, it, you know, that's that's fine. But for the for small business owners, um, it's not a good trade to give up a um, to give up a um, a permanent reduction in the rate that is applied to small business owners and their employees for a one time rebate check. When you think about rebate check versus rollback, what's this rollback that's being kind of projected right now? Is it supposed to be something that has longevity to it, or is it something that would only last a year or a short period of time? Clearly, the rollback was supposed to be permanent. If you were to look at the um, the fiscal analysis of the the bill in 2015 when it passed, the nonpartisan fiscal analysis uh, made that clear. It would take some uh, some legal gymnastics to uh, to reinterpret that in order to uh, to, to cancel the um, to the rollback. I think it's important to note as well that the rollback is based on money coming in to um, coming into the general fund, not on money going out or not what balance is remaining in it. And so a rebate on its face, a rebate actually does not detrigger the um, the, the formula and the rollback, they, they must have a different way of, of accomplishing that or the word rebate means something different than it normally means. A rebate is something, it means money went in and now money's going back out. The trigger is only based on the money coming in to the account. It has nothing to do with how much money is then sent out. So even if they do make it retroactive to 2022, and, unless they're of redefining accounting rules that wouldn't de-trigger the uh, the income tax rollback. So there must be some other way that they're intending to do that because 
I, I thought in the comments they looked pretty pretty confident that uh, that they were somehow going to stop the rollback from happening. Well, well, maybe it's going into a different fund because the original idea was to take eight hundred million dollars and put it into the SOAR fund, so that you're redirecting money that's collected off the corporate income tax and it goes right to the SOAR fund and never goes to the general fund. And so maybe they're taking a percentage of uh, maybe they're doing the same calculation and saying instead of it going to the SOAR fund, it's going to some other mystery form that a fund that from there goes out to rebate checks that's a possibility that's that's the sort of thing that i would call you know accounting gymnastics um to try to try to um to try to avoid the um the trigger by kind of retroactively pretending like money didn't go into the general fund and instead got deposited into some other fund and um that you know again that's that's possible but they'll they would i think that they would have to pass they well i'm not think they would have to pass legislation that did that uh they would because right now it's 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 clear it's in statute it's in the 1976 income tax or the 1967 um income tax act that the that the money from where the money from the income tax goes and most of it goes to the general fund so they would they would have to do something like that to retroactively say this money got deposited into another another fund after all not the uh, mm-hmm. the general fund and therefore um, it's detriggered. So, um, but then that I think it puts them in quite a predicament too where they still my understanding is that they um, that they still have some sore projects that need to um, that need to get approved pretty soon and so maybe they're planning a separate appropriations process for that. Brian, you were there in a principle when they changed the way um, pensions were taxed. Uh, can you speak to what's happening now and what's your analysis is of the situation as far as you know? This is an area that sometimes people get pretty um, confused about when they, you know, as though the word pension is kind of catch-all. Um, the, the governor said today in the, um, in the press conference that public and private sector pensions will, will be equalized. Um, but Private sector pensions don't mean 401ks and IRAs. Private sector pensions are talking about like what somebody from General Motors or Ford mm-hmm. would get. Um, and a follow-up question: She said that um, that those other types of uh, retirements would benefit, but I think that's a uh, it's still it's one of the bigger open questions: is what happens with 401ks and IRAs? Are they um, similar to how pensions, public and private pensions? Are being treated um how big is the disparity between the two of them because you know small business owners and, and employees of small businesses they they have uh, traditional private sector retirement accounts and then another thing is are they is there any equity for seniors who can't afford to retire yet you know that was one of the big changes made back in 2011 was to have some relief to those who couldn't afford to retire and remain, remain in the workforce for older ages it seems like if you're handing out tax relief that that would be um, that that would be a place where it would make sense to um, to beef it up as well but it wasn't really clear from the press conference what was involved or what was included it seems like mm-hmm. uh, that originally what was proposed was kind of this bifurcated system where the the Snyder approach to taxing retirement incomes was just the set amount that if you earned a certain amount from your retirement income, whether it be working at Home Depot or from your pension or your 401k, you wrote off that certain amount. But And it seemed like the original proposal kept that so that you could still make those claims on it if you want to go down that road, 
or you can do the pre-Snyder approach and just get all your pension income completely written off. So it's possible she's keeping that bifurcated system here, Brian. It's possible, but the only reason the bifurcated system made sense was for a phase-in period. So absent the phase-in period, with except for one cohort, which have been working seniors, um, that maybe would have uh, wanted to stay into the um, into the old system, but if you did want to um, to move forward, and just to make it clear, our, like I, for the Small Business Association of Michigan, it's not a matter of do they did they go too far or did they not go far enough. However far they go with retirement exemptions, we just want public and private sector employees, small business employees, big business employees, and working seniors to all be treated the same. So do a lot or do a little, but just treat them the same. I do want to zoom in briefly on the EITC expansion portion, because I know that you actually testified in support of the Senate bill to expand it. Are you frustrated that the EITC expansion is being kind of absorbed into this mega tax relief project as opposed to being approved on the Senate floor last week or maybe early this week? No, I'm not frustrated by that. It's, that's how these things go. Oftentimes, I think there's a, um, in order to get policy done, there are political moves, that you, decisions you have to make. And sometimes uh, putting concepts together makes it easier to uh, to count up to 56 votes in the House, 20 in the Senate, and uh, in the governor's signature. So it's a um, it's a it's a normal process that uh, that gets used. I, what I am I am concerned though about something. I'm concerned that people are going to hear this number three thousand one hundred and fifty dollars and think that that's what the state is doing. That's actually the state plus the federal. That's not the increase that people are going to get. So um, I, I am quite concerned that there's been really persistent messaging on this gigantic number, and and people are going to going to think and expect that they're going to get that from the state. Like that's the increase that's on the table right now. And the, and what's on the table right now, I think, uh, from the state standpoint, is more like you know five, six, seven hundred dollars, somewhere in that type of neighborhood. As far as the cut to the income tax, I don't know if you've done the numbers on this before, but lowering the income tax from 4.25% to 4.05%, what does that actually mean as far as an annual tax cut for somebody? Have you ever looked at the numbers on that? Yeah, it basically cumulative across the state, it means 650 to 700 million dollars a year that instead of going into the government stays in circulation in the economy and uh, and i think that it from a from a macro standpoint it makes a lot of sense i know that the politicians always want to zero in and say for any particular any individual uh person what are they going to do with it and is it worth it right. to uh, to leave it with them from a macro standpoint we're talking about every single year Seven, you know, six fifty, seven hundred million dollars staying in circulation in our communities, and that's where I think it's really uh, powerful. It's instead of having all your eggs in one basket, where they say, "Hey, we're going to give six hundred million dollars to one company to do uh, to do something at one location," you're saying across the entire state with every taxpayer, you're going to keep a little bit more of um, of the money that you used to have to to send in, and I think that's where you have the the more lasting impact where you're trying to create an environment of success in the state as opposed to uh, directing which um, you know which economic activities are worthy of state support and which ones 
aren't. The government will never be as uh, as effective as entrepreneurs and small business owners are in deploying resources in ways that benefit our communities. The reason I ask that is because I'm just doing a back of a napkin kind of idea here. And if you make $100,000, I mean, let's just say that you're making $100,000, that means you spend $4,250 in your state income tax, 4.05%. That all of a sudden that knocks that down to 4,000. So, I mean, it looks like maybe you're getting 200 bucks or something like that. So if you're making $100,000 a year, this tax cut would have meant an extra 200 thousand dollars the rebate checks 180 uh so it kind of seems like it would be a wash the exception being it's not ongoing yeah i think the big difference is that it's ongoing but also i want to come back to that same point that small business owners they pay that not just on whatever salary or amount that they take to live on they have to pay that rate that 4.25 or 4.05 if it rolls back on all of the business income too and so like on paper, it, it always looks like small business owners have more personal income than they do or often does because of that pass through, the, the nature of the pass through tax code. So um, on that number, take, take that, let's say you got a household, a person who has a small business and, and they do take $100,000 a year. But they might be taxed on 250 or 300 or 400 or 500 thousand dollars a year uh, because of the business flow through nature of their income, and that's where I think um, the the across the board rebate checks. I think it's it's great for individual for some individual households uh, where they could get more than what they otherwise did because just where they're at in the tax system. If they don't really uh, pay much into the tax system, then there's not as much. Um, that they would get from a, a rate rollback. But you know, everybody says they support small business owners. Like that's a thing where I hear Democrats say it all the time. I hear Republicans say it all the time. I hear, I, you know, I, I don't think there are any communists elected here, but I think even communists would be like, we're pro small business. But there's a, like everybody says it. And when it comes right down to it though, these details that matter so much to small business owners, that their re- retirees of small business owners be treated as well as retirees from pub- from the public sector. That uh, that if you're going to do rebates, recognize that a lot of small most small businesses are pass through entities, and so that number that they get taxed on is usually a lot more than the actual personal income that they get from their uh, from that they get from their from their business. So it's a um, all, all of this stuff adds up and in and, and at, the, you know, at the end of the day it just seems like there's so much time attention and focus on big companies and um and little more than just words for small companies isn't it fair though for a government to say look we're we're we're, we're riding through a lot of COVID cash moving through the system that's one of the reasons our revenue is up one of the reasons our general fund is up and we have to talk about this trigger is isn't it make sense that uh state government should worry in two years when that money is out of the system that all of a sudden our revenue picture is going to look a lot different. Maybe we shouldn't have rolled it back. Or should we just deal mind, with what the here and now? You, you have to keep of the uh, keep in mind the context here, John. I mean, there are lots of, it, it'd be one thing if it was like, hey, we got we to gotta buckle down because here are, are the expenses that we expect and therefore we've got to keep things the same. But instead we see uh, that 
that there's hundreds of millions of dollars in targeted relief that they want to uh, to uh, to provide for big businesses. We see um, you know something like a billion dollars in total um, in total uh, tax reductions or, or rebates. Uh, much of it uh, to be ongoing. So that context I, I, is where I think it's difficult for small business owners to say, wait a minute. So, so the state can afford to give pretty much everybody but small business owners ongoing relief. Um, that's I think that's where it's um, that's where it's it's difficult to swallow how um, the the argument of one time versus ongoing. Plus, if you were to look at the consensus revenue estimating conference, you'll see that um, that the ongoing uh, revenues are up very substantially as well. So it's not it, it really isn't just one time uh, money that's uh, that has increased. It's the it's the ongoing as, as well. I think the, the tax base of the state of Michigan has really grown like the last 10 years in a row. And uh, and so it, th this trigger was really put in place that um, to where it was the um, if it if it did get triggered, it, it would require so much extra revenue that there would be no argument against <laughs> against uh, keeping the tax rate the same. And yet here we are. Yeah, that was going to be my question, because that was something I kept hearing was that when this income tax trigger was created in 2015, people didn't really ever think we were ever going to activate it. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to know what each individual person um, thought was going to happen. But one thing I can tell you is that the trigger is set such that if it did get triggered, there would be absolutely no argument against reducing the rate because this, the standard for getting triggered is so high. So um, it's, it is difficult to argue. Really, I think the only, the only argument that you could make is that uh, for those who, who pay the individual income tax, like small business owners, um, detriggering it just, it just means that, uh, that there's somebody else that they feel is more deserving. And, um, and whether or not, we don't, I haven't seen the words in this bill and whether or not this bill will explicitly detrigger, or if there's some other kind of legal theory that they're going to apply, or accounting um, changes that they plan to make to try to detrigger it, but it's difficult to understand. Like, why? Why do it? Why? Why go through all of that? Why take something that is otherwise a huge win and and give this you know fresh new majority in the in the legislature a um, you know a, a problem that they would have to deal with in the future? All right. Well, we're going to have to uh, put an end to it right here. Brian Canley, former lieutenant governor here in Michigan and now the president and CEO of the Small Business Association of Michigan. Appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Join us now on the podcast is the president pro tem of the Senate. It is Jeremy Moss. How are you today, sir? I am good, Kyle. Thanks for having me back on. Well, we appreciate having you on because I know you were interested in our, in our past podcast when we talked about the large number of committee assignments that senators in the majority received. One senator has 11 appointments. On an average, you're looking at eight appointments uh, per committee. That's a lot. Um, are you concerned about burnout here? 
No, and really what kind of uh, brought me to talk to you about this was that Bill Ballinger got quote of the day, and I felt kind of shafted. Um, I'm a lot funnier than Bill Ballinger. Uh, but also, Bill <laughs> Ballinger is— I disagree with that as a matter of okay, fact. There was a little bit of dead air there, and I got, I got even more concerned. Uh, <laughs> I was trying but, to think uh, of my witty response. There you go. Uh, but, you know, Bill Ballinger is romanticizing over a Senate that no longer exists. Uh, we have to get work done. And you've put so many headlines out there in MERS and elsewhere about this historic majority. First time in 40 years that Democrats are in control. First time in 40 years that there's a Democratic trifecta. But that's backed up with work. And uh, I, I think that we're going to be doing a lot. And there isn't a single senator in the majority uh, in our caucus who doesn't know the stakes and doesn't understand that we have to deliver for our constituents. Um, so am I concerned about the burnout? I, I think we are buoyed uh, in, 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 in an extra way about the eagerness to get this work going. Uh, and you've seen it uh, over the last uh, month or so. We've been producing. Uh, you were the one who pointed out to me that it was the first time since 1947 that a governor signed a bill in his or her first month uh, of the new term. And I, I think that's what you're going to see from the Senate. Remember, what's the alternative? The the the, the last Senate uh, from from the last six months of the last term, I think we had five session days. Yeah. So there's there's two ends of this extreme. And if we're working uh, and producing a lot, that's better than not doing anything at all. Um, and, and and I look at our caucus, every member is valuable. Every member is ready to roll up their sleeves. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're just hitting our stride. Speaking of eagerness and action in the first month, your Senate Bill 4 got a committee hearing for the first time since 2014. Why don't you tell me a little bit about, you know, your bill and what made this moment so special for you? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I... Um, I, I'm pretty punchy when it comes to LGBTQ rights. When I when I first came to the legislature, um, I, I didn't want there to be any sort of anti-LGBTQ sentiment, statement, or legislation that wasn't going to get a direct and sometimes terse response from me. Uh, in 2014, before I, I was elected, there was obviously then this big conversation around Elliot Larson. We kind of know how that uh, ended up playing out uh, with the last effort to get this bill moving. And when John Hoadley and I came into the legislature in 2015, uh, it, it, we wanted to make sure our voices were in this discussion as well. There was a lot of talk about the LGBTQ community uh, in the legislature, but there was, at the time, there were no serving representatives from the LGBTQ community in the legislature. So adding our voice to the discussion was central um, to advancing this legislation. So I, I look at where We've come from 2014 to today. I referenced it in committee where we've come from 1983 when Representative Dressel uh, introduced this to today. But really, I look at where we've come from 1973 to today. Uh, I was doing my due diligence and research for my committee uh, hearing testimony. And there was an interview with Mel Larson, who's still around uh, and watched the hearing as far as I know. Um, but uh, there was a conversation back when he was elected and partnered with Daisy Elliott uh, in 1973 about including uh, sexual orientation uh, protections at the time. And of course, advocates uh, then wanted it uh, and politics got in the way uh, and we were excluded from the act. So that was 50 years ago. 50 years later, 
in the governor's state of the state address, it was the longest and loudest applause. The journey from people being relegated to the corner, to fend for themselves, to not have allies, to not have others speaking up uh, on their behalf, um, to not having representation, to growing support for this issue, um, and all of the sufferings along the way of people facing this type of discrimination, to get to a point where I think it's it's pretty uh, verifiable that this will pass. Uh, I And I'm confident or, or optimistic that it will pass with bipartisan support. But even if it doesn't, it will pass out of both chambers. It will get to the governor's desk. Uh, it was a really heavy emotional moment for me. Uh, um, and uh, to be on the end of a 50-year journey to be able to run through the tape, uh, I, I take all those people with me. Um, so it's been it's been a very meaningful week for me. No, I'm quite sure. There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of news already out of this legislature, as you mentioned. I wanted to ask you if you had any concerns about letting the income tax rate roll back to 4.05%. You know, that's another thing that's kind of been discussed uh, over the last week with a lot of volume. But I think about the Leonard Chatfield failed plan of first eliminating the income tax, uh, and then rolling it back, I think they ended up at 3.9%. And it was a, a bipartisan coalition that recognized the damage that it would cause to the state of Michigan and our ability to provide services. Uh, and I said at the time, I, I spoke on the House floor, that you know, people who make a lot are going to get a lot. And people who make a little are going to get a little. So really what this amounts to is a rich person's tax break. And I posed it at the time. You know, I don't I don't think day to day with what we're doing, is it going to roll back? Is it not going to roll back? But you know what I think about? I think about my new district and how I would pitch this back home. Uh, I now represent some of the wealthiest Michiganders. Um, some of my constituents have the last name of Illich and Gilbert. Uh, I also represent some of the most economically challenged uh, Michiganders from Detroit to Pontiac. Uh, another constituent of mine is Perry Johnson. Oh, really? And when, absolutely. And when I was knocking doors last summer, uh, I, I, one of my constituents uh, or future constituents said he was a friend of Perry Johnson's, but he was a Democrat. So I, I got his vote. But he told me that Perry Johnson uh, has a lazy river that goes around his house and a three hole air conditioned golf course in his backyard. I can't verify that. I don't know. But that's what I was told. How, Kyle, am I going to go back home to the voter and the resident in Pontiac and say, we're stripping you of some essential services so that we can pay for Perry Johnson's air conditioning bill on his golf course in his backyard? So, you know, Republicans are talking about a tax break for everybody. I'm just not willing to pay for golf course air conditioning. Uh, you should have knocked I on his really, door. This is what this sounds like. You should have knocked on Perry Johnson's door. I don't know that I would be allowed to with you. Property. I, I, how do you, how are you going to get through the lazy river, Kyle? Uh, he's got to have a drawbridge or something. Uh, maybe you maybe. can talk to the attendant in front of the drawbridge. Right. So, but, but, but it goes back to the point, let's target this relief. Uh, Republicans have been, uh, you know, sounding this alarm that everyone is deserving of tax relief. I'm just not so convinced that uh, Perry Johnson's really hurting right now. Uh, I would like to do targeted 
relief that goes where it is needed the most. And that's that's what Democrats have offered over the last few weeks, uh, increasing the working families tax credit, uh, eliminating the unpopular retirement tax. That's my approach. So whether or not we hit this trigger, um, I'm not hearing about this trigger from uh, my newest, most wealthiest constituents back home. Of course. And, you know, I will be contacting Perry Johnson's drawbridge, um, you know, his his assistant or what's the word? The attendant? The attendant. Yes, I will be contacting him expeditiously. Um, you know, but, before before I find myself in litigation with Perry Johnson, someone else told me that. Course, I have not verified that. Um, but, you know, speaking of speaking of expeditiously, I'm curious about, you know, immediate effect. And is there any situation where you could see getting rid of the the current immediate effect rules? I can tell you this is not something we're discussing right now in the Senate. Uh, the, the only real problem, I guess, with the media effect had to do with my presidential primary bill. But I think that MERS itself outlined some viable options uh, to get that bill moving. But we got immediate effect on the close of books. Um, we're in discussion now about getting immediate effect for other things. So it, it, it doesn't weigh over our head the way that I think you think it plays out. Um, and uh, we are in a new Senate, and uh, Eric Nesbitt is a different Senate leader than Mike Shirky. Uh, the conversations we have had with Eric Nesbitt have been productive and thoughtful. Uh, I'm going to disagree with him a lot. Uh, I'm sure we're going to go toe-to-toe a lot, but none, no sides have talked about um, destroying the functionality of the Senate. Um, and so these conversations about immediate effect I, I, I hear people sounding the alarm and, and every time something comes up or is discussed, oh, how are you going to get immediate effect? How are you going to? Well, let's let's find out. Let's 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 find out which votes we need immediate effect for. Um, so uh, it, it has not been something that has gotten any serious consideration because we're not at a crisis level right now. That immediate effect is is holding up some things when the shoe is on the other foot and the Democrats were in the minority and the Republicans needed immediate effect. For the Democrats, it seemed like uh, the Democrats were amenable to giving immediate effect when it was requested. Yeah, it's 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 a negotiation tool. Um, it's it's uh, a an ability for us to maybe compromise on some things and meet in the middle. Um, but it, it it has not held up core pieces of legislation, uh, and and I don't think it will. Uh, we will find out, but. Uh, this is not this is not, you know, the the filibuster uh, on the federal level. This is not something that has uh, prevented us from getting our work done. And this is not something that uh, we can't overcome with some serious conversations with the Republican caucus, at least not yet. What do you think the odds are that we're going that the Senate and the House are going to adjourn sine die early so that presidential primary bill takes effect uh, before February 27? So I don't think that that singular bill is an indication that that's the route that we're going to go. Again, MERS, uh, I give MERS good reporting credit. You put a whole series of viable options out there. Um, I, I don't think that it's going to change personally. I, in my belief, I don't think it's going to change sine the date. The sine date. I don't think it's going to change the sine die date. I think this gets worked out with the RNC and the DNC. Um, I think we had to signal to the DNC that we were ready. Uh, and we also signaled to the RNC to get on board. Um, and so I think that there's going to hopefully be this groundswell of Republicans that 
are uh, not understanding why Democrats uh, want to be more prepared and early and uplift our electorate than Republicans uh, have the ability to uplift uh, their own electorate in an early primary. So I, my belief is that this is going to be solved within the national parties rather than within the Senate's functionality. One of the first podcasts that uh, we did with you was with uh, a, another young House member, very vibrant on the Republican side. You guys were fast friends, even though on ideologically different ends of the spectrum. And you guys were still friends. And, th and that was the whole point, is that you can work with somebody on the other end of the aisle and still be good friends and still have a great working relationship. And at the time, that new member was Lee Chatfield. You must be confusing me for someone else. <laughs> Do you still? I don't recall this. Okay. All right. Uh, it was in the old press room when we used to have a press room in the Capitol, but I'm not going to yeah. go down that road. Uh, have you, what's your relationship been with him when he was speaker and, and since then? Do you talk to him much? I have not talked to Lee Chatfield since these horrific, in all seriousness, horrific allegations came out. Okay. Um, I don't know. I don't have much to say about it. You know, I we're, back to Elliot Larson. You know, we're having this conversation uh, about Elliot Larson, and I think there was this narrative painted that the discussion pits religious people against LGBTQ people. But I consider myself a religious person. I, you know, just as important to my uh, identity uh, as a gay person is is my identity as an observant Jewish person. And so I really tried to meet opposition where they were. And we had a lot of conversations about religion uh, in the context of, of Elliot Larson and how I do not believe uh, that my religious values should prevent uh, uh, me from living an authentic life. And I certainly don't think anyone's religious values should be guiding our civic law here in the state of Michigan. It's very tough for me to reconcile that I worked really hard to have a conversation in the context of religion and morals and values uh, and and the things that he's been uh, accused of. So uh, I do not talk to him. Trying to, you know, kind of end on a light note, your first month in the majority, what has been your favorite part? I haven't had a bad day since Election Day. <laughs> um <laughs> What is my favorite part? I will genuinely tell you. My favorite part is now that we are closer to the uh, coffee area, which I didn't really visit too much because it was on the Republican side. Uh, I've just discovered that there's hot chocolate in the back uh, of the Senate. <laughs> I didn't know that. For four years, I didn't know that. Uh, so that's been a big win. Uh, but honestly, uh, you know, I am, I we are working really hard. We are putting in long hours um, we are getting things moving, but it's all wins. It all feels good. It all feels like uh, the things that we've been talking about were actually able to get done. Um, you know, I said to my staff the other day, I don't really have to ask her uh, too much, my chief of staff, how am I voting on this bill? It's all green so far. <laughs> um, so it, it just feels really good to be working on products. Um, that are 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 going to help the people back home. And another thing, you know, all of this conversation around town, think about what we're talking about. We're talking about which tax relief to give to people. Um, what a what a what a 
good conversation to have. All of these debates between Republicans and Democrats are what kind of money we're sending back into people's pocketbooks. Uh, and so that's that's really been the greatest part. Are we going to see more committee hearings? Because one of the knocks has been you have moved so quickly that some of these key pieces of legislation that have gotten passed haven't had a single committee hearing on them. Well, that's not true in the Senate. So in the Senate, we had a, a hearing on, on EITC. We had a hearing on repealing the pension tax. We had a hearing on Elliott Larson. I know some things have made their way to, to, to conference committee. Uh, where some of the, the the items that need to be reconciled between the House and Senate have to be resolved. Um, but but we have been pretty methodical in, in our operations. Um, and so, but again, you know, we've had, as Leader Brinks consistently says, 40 years of pent-up policy. Um, we're not going to waste a single minute getting things done. And, and I think we've demonstrated that. We've given you a lot to write about. That is for sure. That is for sure. Thank you very much, Senator Jeremy Moss, the president pro tem in the Senate. You got it. Thanks, Kyle. I'm going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks to all of our guests today, Senator Jeremy Moss, Brian Kelly from the Small Business Association of Michigan, and of course, Steve Liedel kicking things off from the Dykema Law Firm. We'd also like to thank AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. Reproduction of the Murders Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Oakmus. For the boss, John Rurink, Samantha Schreiber, and Danielle James, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care. Music.